All right. If uh, you will look at your scripture, there uh, in your bulletin is an outline. If you don't have that, it's in Luke chapter 20. And let me remind you where we are in Luke's gospel. Uh, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem on a donkey. The crowds have hailed him as the Messiah. And he then cleanses the temple. He turns over the tables in the temple because they had turned the temple into a marketplace. And then he's in trouble with the big shots, with the authorities. Now, in Luke's gospel, there's three sets of encounters where the religious authorities try to trap Jesus with a question. And if he answers uh, inappropriately, they could arrest him and kill him. Now, his reason for coming to Jerusalem was to die, but he needed to die on Friday. Um, so he, he answers every question perfectly. The first one, uh, they, they came up to him, all the authorities, and said, I got a question for you. Who do you think you are? By what authority do you do these things? coming into Jerusalem and flipping over the tables. And he says, I have a question for you. John the Baptist, was his authority from God or from man? And they couldn't answer it because um, they didn't have spiritual eyes to see that John was a true prophet of God. So they said, we can't answer. And he said, I'm not going to answer your question. Then um, last week, we looked at the, the next trap where the question was, and there's, there, this was interesting, two different groups. The pro-government group, the Herodians, and the anti-government group, the Pharisees, get together. They hate each other, right and left. They hate each other, but they team up in their hatred for Jesus, and they come up with a question, and the question is this. Is it uh, appropriate to pay taxes to Caesar? And if if Jesus said yes, then the, the Pharisees would say, we knew it, you are a, you're a government sympathizer, and they would tell the crowd, he's pro-government. If he said no, the Herodians would go to, to Herod and say, he's anti-government, he's a tax rebeller, and they could have arrested him. And he says this, here's what you do. Render to Caesar, what's, what's Caesar's? His image is on this coin. But render to God that which is God's. And what, what image uh, is, is on us? Well, we are made in the image of God. Give your whole life to him. They didn't know what to do with that. Today, a third group, the Sadducees, come up to Jesus with a trick question. Now, something you need to know about the Sadducees, they did not believe in an afterlife, right? They believe that this is all there is. You live this life, and then you die. So I'm going to say it. That's why they were sad, you see. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I'll be here all week. Um, they also did not believe that the Old Testament... Um, at least the, the Old Testament that the rest of the Jews read. They only believed that the first five books of the Old Testament were inspired. So they only read 
Um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So they have a trick question for Jesus. If you take a look, Luke 20, 27, there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, a future resurrection from the dead. They asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses, okay, because he's our guy, Moses, wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So that way the the brother who had no children, his name would continue. We see a little bit of this in the book of Ruth. Ruth's husband dies and um, she goes back to Israel and there's a near relative Boaz, who marries her and has a baby with her to carry on the name of her husband, okay? So the Moses had a law that said, you're supposed to do that. But here's the situation. Now she will have had two husbands. So, so they say, here's, here's the scenario, Jesus. Here it is, verse 29. Now there were seven brothers. This is a hypothetical. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second, and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. And I always say the lesson is don't marry that woman. Right? Um, afterward, the woman also died. Now here's their question. In the resurrection, like they're, they're mocking him, you, you believe that? There's an afterlife, a resurrection from the dead. In this supposed resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. So you can see them going, got him, got him. Moses commands that you're to do this, but now she's been married seven different times. So in the resurrection, who is she supposed to be married to? Okay. Now, I've inserted from Matthew's version of this, Matthew twenty two twenty nine, 29, um, what Jesus says. It says, but Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. We'll come back to that in a minute. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age. And how are you worthy to attain to that age? By believing in Jesus, right? Um, worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he's not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. And I give you five lessons that we can learn from this passage. I had many more, but I narrowed it down to five. Okay, so here's lesson number one. Jesus, in his answer to them, assumes there's such a thing as truth, such a thing as right and wrong. 
and they're wrong, and he's right. Andy also assumes that people have the ability to understand the Bible. All right, now you go, well, that's rather obvious. Well, we live in a postmodern world today where the idea that there's a right and a wrong is laughed at. The idea that there's truth and error is up, up for question. Okay, now that term postmodern is thrown around loosely today. There's a there's a formal academic type of postmodernity, and let me talk about that. But there's also an informal kind of a street level of postmodernism. So let me let me first talk about the formal scholarly idea of postmodernism and. You may have heard some of these French uh, linguists and philosophers like Derrida and Foucault and Wittgenstein and Rorty. Um, Basically, these are language philosophers who basically say this. You really can't understand the meaning of a text, of a book, because... You who are reading the book and the author who wrote the book, we are so trapped in our bubbles, in our cultural bubbles, that you really can't communicate from ironclad bubble to ironclad bubble. And those different bubbles may be political bubbles, They may be gender bubbles. They may be racial bubbles. They may be age bubbles, said the boomer to the Gen Z, right? We're just so trapped in our bubbles that the text that somebody in one bubble writes really can't be understood by somebody else. So get your own meaning out of that text, okay? Because you really can't get to the intended meaning that the author wrote. Now, that's kind of a, that's kind of a, a formal academic uh, understanding of postmodernism. Now, here's the, the informal thing that maybe you're a little more familiar with. Uh, you're talking with a friend about Christianity or uh, about some ethical or moral issue, And they go, that's great. You have your truth. I have my truth. That's great. We have our own truths. All right? The only sin is for you to impose your truth upon everyone. It's okay as long as you keep your truth to yourself and they keep their truth to themselves. But to say that you have found the truth, no, no, no. That's that's a violation. Okay, or maybe you've heard this uh, people talking about, well, that doesn't fit my narrative. Narrative is is a certain storyline and uh, certain people have certain narratives and, and others have other narratives. And they say, well, that doesn't fit my narrative. If it fits your narrative, that's great. Just don't make your narrative my narrative. Right now, many Christians 
have bought into the assumption that there is no one true narrative. There are many individual narratives, but it's a power play if you try to impose your narrative upon other people's narratives. Now, um, here's the problem. Jesus in this text assumes there's right and wrong. He's right and they're wrong. And he bases his rightness on a text that was written 1,500 years Okay? He is, he is basing his rightness and their wrongness on interpreting a text that Moses wrote 1,500 years earlier. And he's holding them accountable to understand the text. Now, I think there's some truth to the postmodern assumption that we need to realize that, that we are affected by our culture and by our bubbles. Okay? The other, let's be humble and say, yeah, my interpretive ability is affected by my culture and my bubble. But here's why I can't buy into a full-blown postmodernism. Because of the doctrine of God's omnipotence and his justice. You go, what? Yeah, God is omnipotent. Whatever he intends to do, he can do. And you know what he intended to do? Give us a text. He intended to give us a book that we understand. And his justice requires, because he holds us accountable to understand it, and our eternity is based on what we do with it, his justice requires that we can understand that book. So I'm not a postmodernist in the full extreme sense because I believe God is just and he intended to give us a book. Right? So that's kind of a philosophical, linguistic view of uh, uh, why, why I don't think we as Christians can ultimately embrace postmodernism because Jesus said, You're wrong. I'm right. Here it is in the text. The assumption is you can understand the text. You're accountable to the text. We are not, and, and even a text written 2,500 years ago, okay, 2,000 years ago, you still are accountable in God's eyes to that text, right? Let me give you a second thing that we can get out of this passage. In the next age, okay, after the resurrection of the dead, we will exist in a reality very similar to this age, yet very different from this age. If you look at verse 34 and 35, Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. So that's this age. You get married. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in Marriage. Now, when I do funerals, um, I'm, I'm sometimes I'm amazed at how many Christians say, "I don't. I'm not really clear on this whole how things. What, what what happens when somebody dies, and then are they in heaven? And what about the body? And so, I, I a lot of times in a funeral, I'll just explain. Here's what happens: when a believer dies, the body goes in the grave. The soul, the spirit, goes to be in the presence of the Lord. Right? 
Then there is a future day, it hasn't happened yet, when Jesus will, will bodily return from heaven and the dead in Christ, the, the dead bodies will be raised just like he was raised from the dead. The body will be raised and reunited with the soul that comes with the Lord and then in your body, body and soul reunited, you will live with the Lord. Where? Floating around on a cloud? No. On earth. There is a new heaven and a new earth coming. Now, theologians debate, is it a brand new earth where this one's nuke and he, you know, he makes a brand new earth? Or is it a a recreation of this earth, and I, I tend toward, toward that view. But the idea here is that your eternal existence will be on this planet in a body, right? It's a very physical existence. Now, here's an interesting point. We will be able to recognize each other. I hope you like me because you're stuck with me for eternity, Right? You like me? Okay, good. All right. And, and that is an interesting thing. Let's say you just despise another Christian. What are you going to do for eternity? All right, let's get that, let's get that taken care of. Okay. Um, how do we know we'll recognize one another? In Matthew 8, 11, Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You get to talk to Abraham. I hope I get a seat next to Paul. I got a lot of questions for Paul. All right. You know, do I get to talk to Jesus? Yeah, you get to talk to Jesus. All right. So, so we will actually recognize one another. You will recognize your family. You will recognize your spouse. But you won't be married to your spouse. Now, for some of you, that is a happy thought. For others, that's a terrible thought, okay? Um, why won't we be married? Because marriage here on earth is just a taste of the union that will take place between Christ and his church. All right? But in the next age... The picture here on earth is superseded by the reality. It's better, right? C.S. Lewis um, addressed this. And um, since there are kids present, I'll change some of the language, okay? Um, and, and he's talking about not just marriage, but the physical aspects of marriage. Sometimes when people find out that there's um, not going to be that, they get really disappointed. So here's what C.S. Lewis says. I think our present outlook might be like that of a small boy who on being told that marital in, uh, intimacy was the highest bodily pleasure should immediately ask whether you eat chocolate at the same time. Because in his mind, what could be better than chocolate? On receiving the answer no, 
he might regard the absence of chocolate as the chief characteristic, the chief disappointing characteristic of marital intimacy. You know, his little friends talk about it, and they go, what do you know about it? You don't eat chocolate. In vain would you tell him that the reason why lovers in their raptures don't bother about chocolate is that they have something better to think of. The boy knows chocolate. He does not know the positive thing that excludes it. We are in the same position. We know the intimate life. We do not know, except in glimpses, the other thing, which in heaven will leave no room for it. All right? I thought, I thought C.S. Lewis did a good job there. All right, let me move on to a third point. And this is just a clarifying point. Humans don't become angels in the next life. They become like the angels. If you look at uh, verse 36, it says, For they cannot die anymore. By the way, that's, a, that's another reason you don't need marriage. Marriage uh, is to produce babies because people die. And to propagate the human race, you need to have babies. But guess what? In heaven, you don't die anymore. All right, so you don't need to be married. Because, all right, for they cannot die anymore because they're equal to the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Okay, there's a commercial I saw on TV where it's a it's an organization you can give to, and they build homes for um, for surviving families of of uh, war, uh, people who die in war, and there's this really touching thing where a mom loses her her husband, and she says, "I I never forget the day I had to tell her, Daddy's not going to come home. He's now an angel in heaven." And I mean, I don't want to quibble with a grieving mother, but you don't become an angel in heaven. We become like the angels, right? And and angels, okay, understand this. Angels are called sons of God in the Bible. And you, the moment you believe in Jesus, you become a child of God. But here's the difference between us right now and the angels. The angels are fully sons of God because they are sinless and in God's presence. We still sin. So while we have the status of being children of God, when we get to heaven, we are actually made perfect. And we are fully sons of God, like the angels. Then we will be fully like the sons of God, like the angels uh, are right now. Take a look at Romans 8, 18 and 19, if you have that there. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. You're a son of God right now or a daughter of God right now, but there's a future revealing of who we are. And we will be glorious because we will be made perfect. So there's a future when that is happening also. But you do not become an angel. Number four, number four. 
In this passage, Jesus assumes the Bible is inspired down to the tense of a verb. Okay, take a look at verse 37. But the dead are raised. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Now, in Luke's gospel, Luke doesn't have Jesus quote the actual verse. He just makes reference to it. But in Matthew's account of this, the actual verse is quoted. It's Exodus 3.6. Moses sees a burning bush, and the bush is God appearing to him. And Moses says, who are you? And here's God's answer. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Not I was their God when they were alive. I am their God. And Jesus points to that and he says, you know the, 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 the tense of the verb there? It's a current, it's a current situation. I am their God. Meaning, they're alive right now. Yeah, they physically died, but they're alive right now. Which refutes the idea of soul sleep, the idea that, you know, you just disappear uh, in the intermediate state before you get your resurrected body. Uh, They're alive right now. Remember, Jesus went up on a mountain, and you know who appeared with him? Moses and Elijah. He talked with them. Because they were alive. But, but my point is, Jesus refutes the Sadducees based on the tense of a verb showing that the scriptures are inspired to the very words. Uh, theologians call it verbal plenary inspiration, that each word, not just the ideas, are inspired. Now, don't don't misunderstand. That's not teaching dictation that God said, hey, Paul, take a letter. Dear Romans. No, Paul wrote Romans, but God so superintended the result that the very words are the words that God wanted. Yet Paul's personality is very different than Peter's personality. How it works, I don't know. But Jesus argues down to the tense of a verb. You know, um, the next thing that happens, they've been trying to trap Jesus, and, and Jesus says to uh, the religious leaders, I have a question for you. You've had some questions for me. Here's my question for you. And he, uh, in, in Luke 20, 41, he said to them, how can they say that the Christ, the Messiah, is David's son? In fact, when he came into Jerusalem, they said, Hosanna um, the son of David. So the, uh, the Messiah is a descendant, the son of David. But he says, how can uh, the Messiah, the coming Messiah, be David's son? And he says in verse 42, for David himself says in the book of Psalms, and now he's going to quote from Psalm 110. So this is David saying this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Now, uh, you, you, 
you probably aren't following the whole thing here because sitting under a tree on a front lawn with cars, it's hard to, to concentrate. But Jesus is saying this, Psalm 110, David, talking to the Lord God Almighty, said the Lord God Almighty said to, David says, my Lord, who's a different person than the Lord. So David has two Lords. The Lord said to my Lord, and this Lord, Messiah, is going to be David's descendant, yet David calls him Lord. How could he both be lesser than David and greater than David? All right? And we know the answer is involved in this complicated thing called the Trinity, one God, three in person. And David is referring to two of the persons of the Trinity, and the Messiah is going to be both a descendant of David a son of David and the son of God. And Jesus says, here, let me ask you theologues a question. Figure out Psalm 110 verse 1, and they don't know what to do with it. And it shuts them up. All right. So last point. We'll, we'll end on this one. There's life after death. The whole point is the Sadducees are wrong. They were saying, oh, you, you believe in this coming resurrection from the dead. And Jesus uses their own scripture. Notice he argues from the scriptures they hold to. Okay, book of Exodus. But he basically says, you're wrong. There is a future resurrection of the dead. There is life after death. So here's my question. Knowing that there is life after death, there is a heaven and there is a hell, are you ready? Do you live your life consistently in light of the fact that there is an eternity? You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 32 says this. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts in Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So, so what Paul is doing in, in 1 Corinthians 15, they were saying that there isn't a resurrection of the dead. And Paul says, there is a resurrection of the dead. And he says, you know what, if there weren't a resurrection from the dead, I'm an idiot for fighting beasts. Now, we don't know what actually happened. Did they throw him to some beasts in, in, in Ephesus, or is, he, is that a metaphor for you know, conflict with people, but it was traumatic. And Paul says he endures all these things, prisons and beatings. Why? Because this life isn't all there is, right? I will endure all kinds of suffering for the sake of the gospel, knowing that this life isn't all there is, that there is eternity with the Lord ahead. But if there isn't, you're foolish to live a life of sacrifice, why don't you just eat and drink for tomorrow we die? The most consistent thing to do is avoid all conflict, eat a lot, drink a lot, and die if there's no life after death. But if there is, you better make sure that you're going to heaven. You better make sure that you don't spend eternity in hell and you spend eternity with the Lord. Now, some of you may hear that and you go, 
Okay, I'll clean up my act. That's not how you get into heaven. How do you get into heaven? You need a perfect record. Then nobody gets into heaven. Well, I'm going to heaven. Pastor, I didn't know you were perfect. Well, I'm not perfect in myself, but I'm perfect in Jesus. The whole idea, the whole beauty of the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus gives me his perfect record. When you believe in Christ, it's because you realize you're a sinner. And you say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. What must I do to be saved? And he says, believe in me. And the moment you believe in Jesus, your sins are paid for. That's why he died on the cross. And his perfect righteous record is given to you. So on judgment day, when the Lord greets you, and he says, let me look at your record here. Oh, boy. And then he says, oh, I see that you trusted in Jesus. So all this sin is off your record. And all of Christ's perfect righteousness is on your record. Welcome into heaven. That's the good news of the gospel. Now, if you truly believe in him and you trust in him, you're united to him. Your heart will change. Your life will change. Okay? But your confidence that you will attain to the resurrection of the dead is not based on your performance. It is based on his sacrifice and his life. Have you trusted in Christ? Let me pray and we'll have the worship team come up. Lord, thank you that in this encounter that you have with people who don't believe in an afterlife, you tell them they're wrong. You set the record straight. You point to the scripture and you interpret it properly. You show us that your word is true. And Lord, we, uh, we thank you that we can be assured of eternity with you based on your life and death. Pray, Lord, for, for any here who may not have trusted you and turned their heart over to you. Uh, Holy Spirit, do a work. Show them that this is the most important thing uh, that they could ever do for eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.